I've got my Bible open to Luke chapter 6 because that's where Andrea told me to open my Bible to, and I trust you do as well. It is so great to see you this morning. You know, yesterday I had a great opportunity. I went out to the Elkhart County campus of Gospel City Church. They were like kids in on Christmas morning because all of their portable church equipment had arrived, and they were opening these boxes and seeing all kinds of tools for disciple-making, God-glorifying ministry there. And... Uh, this morning, they've actually been joining us as they are kind of doing their walkthrough this morning. And so we're excited about that. Next week, if you live in Elkhart County, you are assigned and sent to go to that launch service. I think it's at 10 a.m. on that Sunday morning. And uh, if you are a part of the Granger campus, we'll see you here next week. Last week, we introduced you to a group of people in the story of Jesus known as the Pharisees. These people are critical, legalistic, fault-finding people that can't seem to disconnect uh, themselves from uh, what they know is true of the Bible, but can't connect that to what they should know about Jesus being the subject of all of the information in the Bible. Today, we're going to get introduced to a different group of people. Now, as we dive into it, I need to ask you a question to get started here. I just want to look you. I wish I could just have a personal conversation with every one of you. I would ask you this question. Do you want to be blessed by God? Raise your hand if you would like to be blessed by God. Hey, God, if you're handing out blessings today, I would like to be in that line. Wherever the line is to get the blessing, I want that. If after the service today, we had just a special line of people, we were handing out blessings over there, how many of you would stick around a few minutes to get that? You, you, you would do that, right? You want to be blessed by God. Okay, so what you're probably thinking that would mean, like if I was blessed by God, I'd probably have a little more money I'd probably have a little less pain in my life. I'd probably cry a few less tears and I would probably be a little more well-liked by people. That's probably what you think of when you think about what it would mean to be blessed by God. Well, I hate to disappoint you, but Jesus is about to tell us that it means exactly the opposite. People who are Blessed are people who are poor, weepy, filled with pain, and are often rejected by people. Now, let me go back to the original question here. You want to be blessed by God? Is that what you're signing up for? Anybody still want to stand in that line? Hmm, how are we going to navigate that? Well, let's dive into it here as we look at what it means to be blessed by God. Let's open up the story here in Luke chapter 12. How many introverts in the room? Introverts, raise your hand. Introverts don't raise their hand in church. I'm not going to do that, all right? So listen, you're going to like this part. Verse 12 is the introverted Jesus. This is what we have in Luke 6, verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. If you've noticed as we've been walking through the first six chapters of Luke, we find Jesus moving from the private place to the public place, back to the private place, back to the public place. He needs this time alone with God. Now, as an introvert, I appreciate this about Jesus because there's a lot of times that I have to be in a public place and stand in front of hundreds of people and, and try to, you know, pour out and give out. And at the end of that time, I need a little time by myself 
himself to recover from all the things that the people are demanding. That's exactly what Jesus did in this moment. He goes to the place of prayer. Now, we're about to find out why he was praying, but let me just say, I don't know what you're facing, but if you tend to be a little extroverted, you, if Jesus needed time alone with God in prayer, how much more do you need to prioritize a private place of prayer where you pause from all the busyness and all the demands and all of your public persona and maybe you just need to spend an entire night alone with God in prayer. Jesus needed that. In his humanity, he did everything he did publicly through the power he received from God in prayer. Now, what was he praying about? Verse 13, and when day came, he called his disciples. Underline the word disciples in verse 13. He called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. Underline the word apostles. Now, I want you to notice here, there's, there's two different groups of people identified there in verse 13. He called the 12. If I ask you how many disciples Jesus had, most of you would say, yeah, 12 Correct, the original 12 disciples. But notice he called these 12s from another group, a larger group of disciples. There's a sense in which Jesus had 12 disciples. There's another sense in which there was a, a large group of people that were disciples of Jesus. We're gonna find out who they were in just a minute. Now, I want you to notice who these guys were. Verse 14 lists these 12 guys. Simon, who was named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and then there was this other Judas, Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And so we have these 12 guys. Jesus calls them apostles. Now that's, that's kind of a spiritual, religious sounding word. The word apostles just simply means sent one or commissioned one. So these 12 was a special group of people, a small group of people. By the way, if you're not in a small group, here's, here's a biblical pattern for it. Jesus had a small group. Jesus led a small group. Jesus knew that he couldn't give the masses of people the attention that they needed. And so about 12 was about as much as you can really love and know and care for somebody. So he had 12 and that's about the number we have in our small groups here. And so we want you to be loved and known and cared for. And so you should be part of a group of about 12. Now, notice here that one of these guys, his name was Judas. Now, spoiler alert here, spoiler alert. This didn't turn out well, okay? And notice it wasn't a mistake that Jesus chose Judas. God has divine purposes for even the opposition that we face in our life. Jesus was willing to make his life more complicated by dealing with a bunch of guys. Now, I don't know about you, if I was Jesus, that's not an announcement, but if I was Jesus, I would have been praying that God would have led me to the strongest, most courageous, most theologically astute, most qualified guys in the group. 
that's not what Jesus was praying, apparently, because he ended up with a bunch of knuckleheads, right? And so I think what Jesus was praying is he was praying for these guys, that God would give them the courage, that God would give them the heart and the humility and the, and the desire to follow Jesus no matter what the cost was. And so Jesus had this group of 12 guys. Now I want you to notice they were even a part of a larger group. Look at verse 17. Now, where are the extroverts in the room? Where are the extroverts? We already knew. We already knew where you were, okay? So here's the extrovert of Jesus. Verse 17. And when he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples, and here's a third group, a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, that's up in Lebanon, those who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Notice the two different reasons people would come to be healed and to hear. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out of him to heal them all. So notice there's actually three different groups of people identified. There is the 12, that's the inner circle. These are guys sold out. They've left everything. They're going to give their lives because they love Jesus that much. And yet there's a broader group of disciples. They come to hear the teaching of Jesus and maybe to be healed. But then there's even a broader group, the great multitude. And why were they coming? They were coming because Jesus was doing some cool stuff. Jesus was healing diseases. He was casting out demons. You know, every time there's a group of people that gathers, I think the same three groups of people can be identified. There's the people in the inner circle, man. They've given their lives to Jesus. They love him so much. They're paying a price. They've left everything. Then there's a broader group of disciples, and they're, they're interested. They're learning. They're curious. I want to hear the teaching. And then there's this broad group that they show up because they believe Jesus can make their life easier. If I didn't have to live with this disease, if I didn't have to fight this demon, if Jesus could just kind of eliminate those things, my life would be so much easier. Can I ask you a question this morning? Which crowd are you in? Did you come here this morning because you think that going to church makes your life easier? because you're kind of a fan of Jesus and if he would just answer my prayers and give me uh, a wife or fix my husband or give me a better job or send some more money, my life would be easier. And if I get some favor with Jesus, then maybe he'll bless me and I'll get all that stuff. Is that you? I hope that's not you. If, you, if that's you, would you please move a little closer into the inner circle of Jesus? Maybe join the group of people that's here to actually hear from Jesus, to learn how to live a life that pleases Jesus. And if you're in that second group, um, why are you playing in the shallow end of the pool? You're welcome to come into the deep end, the inner circle, and be a disciple. Leave everything. Be willing to make your life more complicated in order to live sent on mission with Jesus. And so these three groups, I believe, are here today. So let's find out how this inner circle actually gets blessed by God. Look at verse 20. 
Notice, do you have a little title there before verse 20? What's your title say? You have a little heading there. What, is it? what, do, we, what do we call these? The B attitudes. You see, there are some attitudes that must be in the heart of a true disciple. Do you have these attitudes? Only if you have these attitudes can you, be, can you expect to be blessed by God. Verse 20, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. Interesting here, who is Jesus about to address this to? The crowd or to the disciples? He's speaking to the disciples. He's not about to preach an evangelistic sermon. He's about to preach a discipleship sermon to help us know what the attitudes are of a true disciple. So we can test ourselves. Are we really a disciple or are we just part of the crowd? Verse 20, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall be, uh, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. And so their fathers did to the prophets. But then, Jesus turns his attention to the crowd and says, woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Two different groups, one blessed, one cursed. The word woe there that he speaks four different times to the crowds, what he's saying is you're living without the blessing because you are living to be comforted now. To be blessed is the most important thing. To be blessed by God is the absolute essential thing that we need from God. What does it mean to be blessed? The word can simply, I've heard it said before in sermons, it means happy. Happier those who are poor, happier those who are, who are weeping. I, it means so much more than to be happy. What it means, it means to be favored. It means to be graced. It means to be approved or in a sense to be applauded. There's a sense in which when we come the first 30 minutes or so of our worship service, do you know what we're doing? We are blessing God. We're approving of God. We're applauding God. We're favoring God. We're saying you're the one we're living for. You're the greatest thing. You are holy. The second half of the service is to teach us how to be blessed by God, to be approved by God, to be applauded by God, to live a life that is favored by God. So when we say we want to be blessed, what we're saying is we need God's active, intentional, 
targeted grace to be dumped in our lives, even though we are totally unworthy of it. Now notice, to be blessed by God is not something you do. Christians are blessed. And so there are some attitudes that we have and some things that we do because we are blessed. If you're favored, if you're approved by God, it produces these kinds of attitudes in us. And so to be blessed is the greatest need of every person here today. So you wanna be blessed by God? Here's the first thing that he tells us. You've got to be poor. How you doing with that? Um, the problem with that is we live in 21st century Western American culture. So I'd like all the rich people in the room just to stand up right now. All the rich people, just, we just want to identify who the rich people are. Oh, we didn't get any volunteers. Yeah, the, here's, here's the thing. Nobody in this room thinks you're the rich guy. When you think of the rich guy, you think of that other guy that's got more than you. But here's the thing, 98% of the world is thinking of the people in this room. Of all of the human beings that have ever lived on this planet, you are part of the top 1% richest people ever in the world. That's a problem, you know why? Because Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor. And when he's talking about poor there, he's talking about, he's really talking about power. The richer you are, the more power you have, the more control you have to shape the life that you want to have. It's economic power. So the question is this, if you want to be blessed by God, you've got to answer this question correctly. What will you do with power? Now, it's amazing that poor people are actually more open to the gospel. Do you know why? It's because they are convinced that everything they have is a grace gift. And the more that you have, the harder it is to believe I am powerless. Now, by the way, when he says blessed are the poor, we think the opposite of poor is what? What's the opposite of the word poor? Why didn't anybody say middle class? The opposite of poor is also middle class. He didn't, he didn't just say, he didn't say blessed are the middle class. You see, middle class people, they live with the illusion of control. And if I had a little more money, I could have a little more control. And Jesus is saying, blessed are people who understand they actually have no control. Blessed are people who don't live with the illusion that they can control anything about their lives. Blessed are people that understand that we are powerless to pay our sin debt before God. And so it, it's not just talking about economic poverty here. We know that because over in the Gospel of Matthew, when Matthew records this sermon that Jesus preaches, what does he say? He said, blessed are those who are poor 
in spirit. So he's talking about a spiritual poverty. Blessed are those that know you're spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those that understand you have no power to achieve favor from God. And there's an attitude of a disciple that says, no matter how much I have, no no matter how much earning power I have, I've got to continually move toward the place of spiritual need. I've got to resist the temptation to think I can live without a desperation for God. People who are poor in spirit are sacrificial with their stuff. People that are poor in spirit are so generous at times, they will actually feel like they're putting themselves at financial risk as they pry their fingers off stuff that would deceive them into thinking, I'm in control, I have power, and I don't need God. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, that understand they're spiritually bankrupt. Christians are those that never lose the sense that their destiny eternally is dependent upon the riches of God's grace. Christians are willing to leave everything of value to gain that which has ultimate value. And Christians freely share what they have with others so others can be made spiritually rich. Disciples have a willingness to live with less less money, less control, less power, because we are trusting in something outside of ourselves for what we need. Now, who does that? How many of you are doing that? You will only be willing to live with less and to give away more if you believe the second half of the verse. Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, yours is the kingdom of God. We are citizens of this heavenly kingdom in which Jesus rules and reign as king. And so Christians are willing to sacrifice their power and their possessions in order to be citizens of this kingdom. Now listen. Understand how radical and upside down this thinking is. This is what he's saying. If blessing is your goal, you all said you want to be blessed by God, then poverty is a gift. Poverty of spirit, and if in order to produce the poverty of spirit, you have to be made economically impoverished, We should be willing to do that to gain what only God can give. We we have to live with a spirit of desperation every day. With every dollar of income that comes our way, we must not allow it to deceive us into thinking that it can satisfy. We have to live with a spiritual desperation. We have to have a spirit of generosity in order to always be thinking, this is not my world and I can't buy my way back to God. I have to live with the spirit of empowering others. What you do 
when God actually increases your earning power will determine whether or not you will be continued to be blessed by God. Those who are blessed by God have a spiritual hunger. So what will you do with the power that God gives you? Here's the second question. What will you do with your passions? Notice the second beatitude, verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. By the way, how many of you are actually hungry right now? Are you hungry right now? You hungry? I mean, it's, it's not time for lunch. It's hopefully you had breakfast. And so did, did you see the people that raised their hand? Are the people that are actually physically hungry right now, the people that have a rumbly tummy right now, are those people more blessed than the people who are not hungry right now? Is that what he's saying? Blessed are the hungry. Now, again, over in Matthew, he gives us a little more detail on what Jesus actually said. He said, blessed are those who are hungry, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So we got to ask the question, what is righteousness? Certainly there's a sense in which we understand it to be the imputed righteousness of Christ. But really the word righteousness just simply means things made right. If you have lived in this world for longer than 20 minutes you realize this world is jacked up. This world is broken. It, there's something not right about this world. And we feel it. And it makes us hungry to live in a world where things work right all the injustice that we see, all of the pain, all of the economic poverty even. We wonder why there's, there's, there's inequality and, and, and abuse and racism and, and we, we, why, why, why do people die even? You see, there's a hunger in the human soul that says, I wish things were made right, a hunger for righteousness. We live with a hunger in our soul for satisfaction, for security, even for significance. And the world tries to mask this hunger in us by feeding us a bunch of spiritual junk food. How many of you actually believe that a Snicker bar satisfies? You actually believe that? Okay, I see that hand, I see that hand. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And, and you know what? I, I believe that for about 30 minutes, and then, then I want another Snicker bar, or a Butterfinger this time, or a Milky Way, or crab legs, or steak, you know? It's like, you just keep upgrading the food until you realize, hey, every time I eat, a few hours later, I get hungry again. That is true with everything created in this world. Do you understand? God created nothing in this world to satisfy the deepest passions of your soul. Are you a passionate person? Do you have passions? What are you passionate about? I hope you're passionate about things because passionate people are those who are blessed by God. Jesus says, blessed are you if you don't try to mask your hunger 
if you don't diminish your passion to be in a world that works right. This is the world that we're living for when Jesus comes to make all things right. The hunger that we feel in the human heart is actually a hunger for God. And it shows itself in subtle ways. It's, it's the desire of an eighth grade girl to be noticed at school. It's the desire of an eighth grade boy to make the basketball team and make the winning shot and to be recognized. It's, it's the desire for a businesswoman to, to finally reach profitability in her company and to feel like she's accomplished something. It's the desire for a man to be acclaimed and acknowledged for his education or his contribution, even in, even in the smallest things. There is a hunger in the human soul that longs to know satisfaction. But here's what Jesus says. No matter how long you live in this world and no matter how much stuff you try to put in that hunger, it'll never satisfy. Disciples know that only Jesus will satisfy. And it's not gonna happen in this world. It's gonna come at a later time, at a future time. Disciples are willing to live with the spiritual hunger until God satisfies it in our heart. So you know what that means? If blessing is your goal, unsatisfied passions are a gift. So whatever you're longing for, a better marriage, a better job, to be noticed, to, to make the team, to be, to be acknowledged, you, you may have to live with that until you finally are satisfied by Christ in heaven. That means that every day when you get up in this world, you shouldn't try to diminish the hunger or to deny the hunger or to satisfy it with the junk food of this world. Let that hunger drive you to God, not drive you to entertainment, not drive you to better food and better cars and better clothes, but to drive you to God. He's the only one that can satisfy the hunger in our soul. What will you do with your passions? Here's the third question. What will you do with your pain? Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Thirdly, he says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Matthew says, blessed are those that mourn. It's an acute emotional pain caused by seeing the world the way God sees it. We live in a world that is broken. It's interesting, right? How many of you have ever been in the room when a baby was born? Raise your hand if you were in the room. How is the first five minutes of human existence lived in this world? It's bawling your eyes out. It's like there's just something in that baby that knows I shouldn't be here. And I protest. There's a pain. There's a weeping. We are, the, the reality, it is human to weep. That's how we spend the first five minutes of our life, weeping. And Jesus says this, blessed are you that never stop weeping. Never stop protesting the pain that you live with. 
Don't deny it. Feel it and let the hurt drive you to God. I'm reading a book by my friend Mark Vrogup. He just came out with a book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. And the book is designed to help us embrace a biblical word that we've forgotten all about. The biblical word is lament. We even have a book in the Bible called Lamentations based on that word. Over a third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. Those are the ones that during your daily Bible reading you skip over because they're so depressing. Like, why is this person complaining against God? Is that even allowed? And, and like, what? That's about a third of what we have in the Psalms. To lament means that we have a grief that moves us between the pain and the promises of God. That we don't deny the pain. We, we don't try to ignore it or, or diminish it in any way but never to allow the pain to diminish our trust in the promises of God. And so Jesus says, blessed are you that experience pain and actually know how to process it through your lament. We should weep over the sin in this world. We should weep over things that are lost or things that are never found in this world because it's not designed to satisfy. But then in an even more personal level, There should be a periodic, regular pattern of weeping and mourning over my own sin. As God brings conviction on my soul and I recognize the ugly selfishness and self-righteousness and lust and greed and all the broken bent to, to be my own God. There should be periodic times where that drives me to tears. Question, when was the last time you shed a tear over the sin in your own life that makes God seem so distant to you? Blessed are those who weep, that own it, that feel it, that grieve over their own sin and then let that grief and that pain drive you to God. Listen, if blessing is your goal, pain is a gift. Blessed are those that weep because they shall laugh. A a disciple of Jesus understands that one day we will be in the presence of God who will wipe away every tear. And so we allow ourselves to weep now over the depth of our sin. We weep over the brokenness in this world, but we weep knowing that one day God will wipe away every tear from our eye. A couple of weeks ago, I had lunch with a a buddy of mine, a man in our church. His name is Aaron Jones. And one of the things I love about Aaron, uh, number one, he's twice my size. Secondly, um, he's got a pastor's heart. He loves God's word. And do you know what he does every Sunday morning? I think probably even right now, he is at Waterford Assisted Care Facility at Edison Lakes, ministering to a group of about 12 people that are residents in that facility opening God's word, ministering to them, praying for them. So I had lunch with Aaron a couple weeks ago. And after lunch, I said, what are you doing with the rest of your day? He's like, I'm going to go visit some of my residents at 
Waterford. I said, can I go? And he said, sure. So we jumped in the car and we went there and he took me up to the second floor of this facility where we visited a man named Pete Stebbins. Pete's 94 years old. Pete, for 21 years, was the police chief in Mishawaka. Three weeks before that time, Pete had lost his wife of 62 years. And as we interacted with Pete, he shed a tear or two as he was telling us about his wife and all the things that he loved about her. But in the middle of weeping, there was a smile on his face and he would laugh at certain points and and he, he would just continue to repeat this phrase, she was ready to go. And there was a sense of, of peace in the midst of his pain that knew she was having a great day. And one day he would soon be with her. Do you have that kind of attitude toward pain? Or is your attitude anybody that causes you pain gets pain back? Or can you trust God in the midst of your pain and understand you're blessed if you know what to do with your pain? Not trying to escape it, not trying to eliminate it and try to cause pain for people that cause pain in your life. Blessed are you that weep for you shall laugh. So we get up every day and we go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm not gonna try to escape the pain. I'm not gonna diminish the pain. I am letting my pain drive me to you. Jesus knew that these disciples he was calling were going to live a painful life because they were following him. Only thing they had to do to escape the pain was stop following him. Is that what you've done? You found it so painful to follow Jesus, you've stopped and you've just kind of drifted your way back into the crowd and all you show up for is the healing part, not the hearing part. Here's the fourth thing. If you wanna be blessed by God, you've got to know what to do with people. He says in verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you. Isn't it interesting that the only people that our culture is allowed to hate are followers of Jesus? It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, this, this is the only tolerance we have in the culture for hate. We hate the Christians, right? So Jesus predicted that. And he said, if you're in that crowd, you are blessed. He's like, thank you for blessing me. Appreciate that. So blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, when they spurn your name, when they misunderstand you, when they mistreat you, when they fire you, when they don't call you and invite you to the parties, when they accuse you, when they gossip about you, when they slander you, when they abuse you. Now, listen, that's about as far as anybody in this room will ever get. But throughout the centuries, it goes a little further. Blessed are you when they arrest you. Blessed are you when they imprison you. Blessed are you when they torture you, when they burn you. 
Blessed are you when they kill you. Why? Because that's the doorway to heaven. And that's the place where we are accepted and approved by God. Listen, if blessing is the goal, you you all said, I want to be blessed. Then rejection is a gift. Are you so secure in your identity in Christ that you do not wrap your identity around what people think about you? There will come a place in your life when you cannot have the approval of people and the approval of God at the same time. Are you more concerned with the approval of God or the approval of people? Listen, if you are approved by God, it doesn't matter who disapproves of you. If you are disapproved by God, it doesn't matter who approves of you. What does Jesus say? Look at verse 23. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. Is that the way that you responded when you got fired? Is that the way you responded when people cussed you out? Leap for joy. Jesus is being super serious here. He's like, you should be so happy because your identity is found in Christ. Yesterday at the men's breakfast, we had about 200 guys in here eating pancakes and bacon. And uh, it was a great time for me because I got to have an actual conversation with people that I'd normally just pass on Sundays. And I, I met this guy and he said, I've loved coming to your church. I feel so well fed here. And, and he told me he'd been coming for about eight months, but <clears throat> recently he'd gone through a divorce. He said his wife just walked out on him and said a bunch of nasty things that weren't true. And he said, that actually was the turning point for me that drew me to God. And he said, I, God gave me a mission statement for my life. And he just rattled it off. It was perfectly worded. And, and it had to do with his identity. He said, I am loved by God. I am valued by God. My identity will be defined by God, not by what my wife said about me. Where do you find your identity? Are, are you, re- you, still, you still want to be blessed by God? I want to be poor. I want to be hungry. I want to live with pain. And I, I am willing to let other people disapprove because I know that I am approved by God. Listen, only people that would do this would be disciples of Jesus, willing to share your home with the homeless, willing to sacrifice your job for the sake of integrity, willing to lose a boyfriend or a girlfriend because you won't compromise your sexuality, willing to give up comforts of your life and move to a place where the gospel is not known so people can be discipled. Are you willing to do that? If you are, you're blessed. Listen, Christians are the ones that know there's a payoff in their poverty. Only Christians know that there's comfort in their tears. Only Christians know that there's satisfaction that this world can't provide. Only Christians know there's acceptance in the midst of being rejected. Why? Because Jesus was willing to be made materially poor so that I could be made spiritually rich. Jesus was willing to be rejected by men and hung on a cross so that I could be accepted by God. Jesus was willing to weep in the Garden of Gethsemane over 
the wrath that he would have to endure for my sin so I could have every tear wiped away. Do you know him? Are you part of the crowd? Are you part of the curious? Or are you part of the core, the disciples, that would leave everything and be blessed by God? Why don't we stand together, and as you're standing, would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I don't know what crowd you're in. I don't know what kind of opposition you face. If you live this way, somebody's gonna call you silly, reckless. And so let's do as Jesus did. And let's pray and ask God to give us the strength to live that way. Jesus, thank you for the example. We know that in, um, in this passage, you've given us the way, the pathway to get blessed. And God, thank you for the men and the women in this room right now that live an upside down life and value things that this world does not. And I pray that we would embrace the pain, that we would run to you with our hunger, and God, that we would find our identity in your approval rather than anybody else. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you're loved.